Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger, and here is our first story. Front page Globe Gazette, Mason City Hotel Project. Another deadline is missed. Officials will break ties with developer if progress not seen soon. It's written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. The years-long saga of the proposed Mason City Hyatt Place Hotel development is once again at a crisis point. A December 20 closing date passed without the developer, Main Street Community Capital, headed by David Elias Reishi, submitted the necessary paperwork to final, uh, finalize closing. I believe that's Reiki. Mason City Administrator Aaron Burnett said city staff is working on what comes next, noting the city is now willing to cut ties with Reiki. The city is committed to the hotel being built, but is looking to see what or that progress becomes very quickly. We will continue to work with the current developer to either achieve closing soon or terminate the current development agreements, Burnett said. The Globe Gazette was unable to reach Reiki for a comment Wednesday. The hotel development project was initially a part of the River City Renaissance Plan, which included the hotel, ice arena, performing arts pavilion, skywalk, and improvements to the Music Man Square. Over the years, the project has gone through a number of itinerations. The original 2013 development proposal between the city and G8 Development and Philip Schoeder was terminated when GA was found in default after failing to meet deadlines for starting construction. In 2017, Gatehouse Capital submitted a proposal that was accepted after the G8 deal fell through and Reiki touted his experience in building 20 hotels throughout the nation. The development and its ever-changing cast of characters has been a frustration for residents from the beginning. After the announcement of the deal with Gatehouse, local real estate developer Brett Schoenman raised concerns about the gap financing Gatehouse required. While Reiki has been enthusiastic about the Mason City Development Project, there are indications he may not have the track record he has described. A December 17 email to Councilmember John Lee from Gatehouse, Dallas Vice President Colin McDonald warned the council that some in his organization had begun to lose confidence in Reiki. According to McDonald's email, the day-to-day management of pre-construction and moving into construction, including all financial controls, will fall fully on the Dallas office, and David's role will be of liaison for the city of Mason City. The Music Man's Square and our own professional teams— Reiki has since left Gatehouse Dallas and formed two companies, Main Street Community Capital and SBMC LLC, to manage the hotel development and additional Southridge Mall renovation. The Southbridge property has been transferred to SBMC and taxes to the city are overdue in the amounts of $39,944 and $36,795 on the two lots sold to the developer. Burnett said the issue of back taxes can be solved with the closing as money would begin to flow at that stage of development. It's always about getting to the closing. That takes the longest. 
Once papers have been signed, there's a lot of money in these developments, and investors want to see their returns on that as soon as possible. Delays have become a repeating theme in the hotel development. In March of 2020, the property conveyance was delayed and a construction deadline of July 1 set. Construction did not begin, and in 2020, Reiki declared, quote, will be in the ground by the end of May, end quote. He and purported business partner Bob Johnson told a similar story at the state of North Iowa Dress in January 2023. The pair described the transformation of Southridge Mall into a family fun destination and pitched the idea of building apartments on the roof of the mall to increase housing in the area. Groundbreaking, which was announced for early spring of last year, has yet to commence. Story 2 on the front page, headlined, Trump on top at high turnout Mason City GOP caucus. Delays caused not by weather, but by long lines. This is written by Alexander Schmidt, the Globe Gazette. Former President Donald Trump scored a solid victory in the Iowa caucuses Monday, and Cerro Gordo County voters followed the lead of their own of their Iowa brethren, awarding the Republican frontrunner an overwhelming win in the country or in the county, I'm sorry. With 100% of precincts reporting, Trump received 60% support in the county with 941 votes, followed by 281 for former South Carolina Governor and U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, 235 for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, 97 for entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and 17 for Texas Pastor Ryan Binkley, 2 for former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and seven votes for other candidates. Trump won the state with 51% of the vote. The Republican caucuses at uh, Mason City High School got off to a slow start Monday night. Most meetings convened shortly after 8 p.m. and hour after an hour after their scheduled start time and well after the Associated Press and CNN called the caucuses for Trump at roughly 7.30 p.m. based on early results and polling. The delay was caused by the sheer number of participants at the high school, <clears throat> excuse me, high school, and the need to verify their voter information was accurate, according to multiple precinct officials. Multiple potential caucus participants were turned away due to inaccurate voter registration information, according to a married couple who declined to give their names and said they were told their registrations did not match the party records. The caucus location offered same-day registration forms but did not have enough for the multiple multitude of requests. Temperature readings in the digits below zero proved not to be a deterrent to either the caucuses or the basketball game being held across the halls of the various meetings. Nancy Rockman served as caucus chair for a Ward 4 meeting and described it as a madhouse, but adding, out of chaos comes order. Rockman has served as a caucus captain for the last four election cycles and said it's the most important election of her lifetime. Hopefully we see the participation of younger people. You can tell from my cap I will be voting for Trump. I'm looking forward to him paying down the debt, she said. First-time caucus participant Marcia Patton, who supported DeSantis, said she was aware Trump held the lead, but she was glad her voice was heard. Quote, I love Trump, but with all his legal stuff going on, no one knows what would happen. What if, for some reason, he can't be president? End quote. 
Patton said Trump's legal troubles were the deciding factor that led her to vote for DeSantis because she thinks, quote, he's the future of the party, not Trump. It's good, added Patton, that everyone's, everybody's decisive and that their vote matters, end quote. Page two, a local attorney announces campaign for CG supervisor. Globe and Gazette staff wrote this. Mason City native and local attorney Tim LaPointe announced in a press release his intent to run for Cerro Gordo County Supervisor, District 1. Since announcing, announcing his exploratory committee two weeks ago, the point said in a statement, I have ramped up the hard work of investigating the most important issues currently affecting our county and have been talking to friends, neighbors, local leaders, and scores of others to determine what matters most to them, what a county supervisor can do for them, and what can be done better, he said. The point said he promises bold, independent, professional leadership in the position of county supervisor. Quote, I am confident that my brand of professional progressive and progress, progressivism will ensure, inure, I'll try that again, folks. I am confident that my brand of professional progressivism will inure to the benefit of the citizens of this great uh, county, end quote. Well, appoint pledges to work with Republicans, independents, and Democrats for the betterment of the county and has assembled an impressive campaign committee consisting of members of all parties. He cites his numerous leadership positions on bipartisan boards and commissions at the state and local level for over 33 years as an example of how he can and will work to get things done, even in a challenging political environment. In keeping with his main campaign mantra and pledge to work together, Lapointe modifies an immortal quote from former President John F. Kennedy, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what we can do for our country. County. End quote. So in the release, Lapointe credits his parents and grandparents with instilling in his family a sense of social conscience and the notion and responsibility that to those whom much is given, much is expected. LaPointe's grandfather, R.J. Clapsaddle, served as state representative from a district including Mason City from 1964 to 1966. Next article. Garner Man is accused of shooting vehicle. It's written by Lisa Gruet of the Globe Gazette. A Hancock County man is facing felony charges after an alleged shooting incident on Sunday. Police say that around 3 p.m., an officer witnessed 38-year-old Michael John Marsignac of Garner fire a shot at a vehicle in front of his residence, striking it. According to court documents, Marsignac told authorities he'd been having problems with the victim. The victim admitted to pushing snow into Marsignac's driveway, apparently prompting Marsignac to exit his house with a pistol and fire around at the vehicle. Marsignac is facing a felony count of intimidation with a weapon, misdemeanor counts of disorderly conduct, fighting or violent behavior, and fifth-degree criminal mischief. A no-contact order has been issued on behalf of the victim. Marsignac posted $10,000 bail on Tuesday, no court date has been scheduled as of Wednesday afternoon. Lisa Grud is the person who wrote that article. 43 North Iowa announces 
Dancing for the Dream Lineup, another article written by Lisa Gruet, and it reads, 43 North Iowa kicked off its 2024 Dancing for the Dream event January 10 at Affordable's Marketplace, according to a press release. Local teams are now practicing their dance performances to win the Crystal Ball Trophy. This year's fundraising event is on 6 to 9 p.m. Saturday, April 6th at the Surf Ballroom. There are seven couples dancing this year. They each want to win your dollar votes to help us reach our goal of $75,000, said Executive Director of 43 North Iowa, John Derryberry. This event is so fun and is important in expanding access to services. Proceeds from the event support programs for people with disabilities in North Iowa. According to 43 North Iowa, its mission is helping people with disabilities find their way through home, employment, and community experiences. Music by Sweet Nothings will be featured from 6 to 8 p.m., and cocktails and appetizers by High V East will be served. The opening performance at 7 p.m. includes the Newman and NIACC dance teams alongside special guests. Featured North Iowa celebrity dancers and their partners include Sarah Andereg, ISU student with her father Steve Andereg of Andereg Farms, Peyton Olson of Mercy One North Iowa Cancer Center with Ethan Mayer of H&S Construction, Melissa Moretz of First Citizens Bank with Nathan Moretz of North Iowa Farmer, Taylor Steele, reigning Miss Iowa, Mrs. Iowa, Beauty Bar Aesthetics with Eric Alberts of No Filter Medical Aesthetics, Aesthetics and Wellness, David Bill of Curry's ASSA ABLOY with Don Bill of Independent Sales Director, Mary Kay, Jenny Sankey of Mason City Police Department with Bob Sankey, State Fire Marshal. Harissa Price of 43 North Iowa with Tim Dwight, former Hawkeye slash NFL football player. Silent and live auctions will be held throughout the night. Auction items include a murder mystery at the museum party, treehouse dinner experience, Clear Lake weekend getaway and pontoon party, tickets to some of your favorite football games, private dance lessons with professional ballroom dancers, curated baskets, and more. One ticket holder will get a chance to win up to $1,000 playing deal or no deal. Tickets are on sale for $70 each or $700 for tables of eight at the administration office at 109 2nd Street Northeast in Mason City and by calling 641-424-8708 or by visiting 43 North Iowa um, hyphen bloom dot kindful dot com forward slash e forward slash dancing hyphen four hyphen the hyphen dream. If you got all that, that's where you go. That was kind of long, wasn't it? The tables for eight or front row booths of four are limited. You can direct your ticket price to vote for your favorite dancer. This is from the opinion page. It's called Scrap the Iowa Caucuses, which are out of step and stale. And it's written by Patricia Lopez, who is a Bloomberg columnist and former member of the editorial board at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, where she also worked as a senior political editor and reporter. The Iowa Caucuses caucus has become an outdated relic. Like eight-track cassettes and 
checkbooks. It served a valuable purpose at one time, but no longer. Donald Trump, as he has with so many things, reset the rules of the political game in Iowa, especially turning the state into a backdrop for his brand of theatrics. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, played by the old rules. He dutifully visited each of Iowa's 99 counties, poured money into building the ground game that everyone said was needed, knocked a million doors, and held 136 events in the last year, fielding voter questions at every turn. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley followed a similar, if less intense, path bouncing between Iowa and New Hampshire. Trump? He held a couple of dozen rallies, including some tele-rallies, sent in a handful of surrogates and staged photo ops like the one on Sunday where he delivered convenience store pizza to firefighters in Waukee. He did invest in a well-run ground operation, but also rejected every debate against his challengers and took few impromptu questions from voters. For this, Trump was rewarded with a historic win on Monday night, romping to a landslide that demolished the or demonstrated his demographic strength in every corner of the state and among every kind of voter. DeSantis battled his way to a distant second, a full 30 points behind Trump, with Haley close behind in third. In a final bit, in a final bit ignominy, networks called the race for Trump before Iowans had even finished casting their secret votes. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The concept behind the Iowa caucus was both noble and novel when it debuted in 1972. Ordinary Iowans, farmers, factory workers, small business owners, waitresses, sales clerks would be able to vet presidential candidates in small forums designed to push past rote talking points and stump speeches to get to something real and meaningful. No handlers, no rope lines, just candidates and prospective voters. That was before trackers and long before the Internet and social media. Iowans took their responsibility seriously, priding themselves on their ability to take a true measure of a candidate and the organization behind them. I like the history of it, said Mike Klosterman, owner of a spice shop near the capital in Des Moines. But those days are gone. It's time has passed. Klosterman still marvels that he personally met three candidates who went on to become president. But the caucus is increasingly out of step with how modern American lives, works, and picks its presidential candidates. Out of step, too, with how modern campaigns roll. Larry Jacobs, director of Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota, said the Iowa caucus is a political system that has far outlived even its most modest claims. The caucus, he said, has become a giant moneymaker for Iowa that also favors voters who are connected to a special interest and ideological groups and extremists. Because it's held over a couple of hours on a weekday evening during the bittersweet part of winter, many Iowans are excluded from their process. Unlike primary voting, there are no absentee ballots, no early voting periods. Because it's a party process, there is no time off work from work to vote. Minnesota was also a caucus state at one point, Jacobs said. But the rebellion against the lack of inclusivity became too much. When Minnesotans lined up for blocks, a caucus for Barack Obama in 2008, he said, they threw up their hands at a process for democracy that just wasn't working. 
Minnesota went to a presidential primary after 2016. Can the caucus ever go back to its glory days? Unlikely. Social media has made candidates far too careful, and the big money needed to run modern campaigns demands that little be left to chance. The people who show up are so unlike the rest of America, the rest of the state, Jacob said, and he went on, it's just not reflective. Not since 2000 has the winner of a contested Republican Iowa caucus gone on to win the presidency. Now, Trump has shown that there is no need to play by the rules in Iowa, exposing the falseness of the narrative about small-town democracy, even as he benefits from it. The Iowa caucus, even if it survives, may never be the same. Again, that's written by Patricia Lopez, a Bloomberg columnist and former member of the editorial board of the Minneapolis Star. And here's another opinion from uh, the paper. It's called Another View, Wall Street Journal. Do homeless have a right to vagrancy? Supreme Court will consider if cities such as San Francisco can, San Francisco can enforce public order. Good news for West Coast Dennis, denizens. The Supreme Court recently agreed to hear an appeal challenging a judicial ruling that established a de facto constitutional right to vagrancy. Wouldn't it be rich if conservative justices rescue progressive cities from themselves? City of Grants, Pass v. Johnson. A panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2022 blocked the Oregon town of Grants Pass from enforcing anti-camping laws on public property. The judges said the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment prohibits cities from arresting or imposing penalties on homeless people for squatting on public property if there aren't enough shelter beds for every vagrant. Progressives have issued the ruling to sue to stop cities across the West from enforcing similar laws. Under the appellate court's precedent, a police officer in, say, San Francisco can cite a homeless person who has set up a tent inside a public playground even if he has been offered temporary housing. Many homeless uh, reject temporary shelter because they'd rather live on the streets where they can freely use drugs. The Ninth Circuit decision has made it harder for local officials to use the threat of penalties to force vagrants to accept treatment for mental illness and drug addiction, which has contributed to the increasing disorder in West Coast cities. San Francisco Mayor London Breed last summer held a rally in front of the Ninth Circuit Courthouse to protest a lower court injunction blocking the city from clearing homeless camps. The judges aren't or weren't moved, and a two-to-one majority of a three-judge panel upheld the lower court ruling. In a fiery dissent, Judge Patrick Bumatay, B-U-M-A-T-A-Y, explained that nothing in the text, history, and tradition of the Eighth Amendment comes close to prohibiting enforcement of commonplace anti-vagrancy laws. The court's sweeping injunction has no basis in the Constitution or our precedent. He added, San Francisco should not be treated as an experiment for judicial tinkering. Our decision is cruel because it leaves the citizens of San Francisco powerless to enforce their own health and safety laws without the permission of a federal judge, Judge Bumatay, B-U-M-A-T-A-Y, wrote. And it's unusual because no other court in the country has interpreted the Constitution in this way. Well, this may be one reason the High Court agreed to hear the grant pass appeal. 
Local governments in the Ninth Circuit's jurisdiction, including Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Phoenix, also urged justices to hear the case. And that includes California Governor Gavin Newsom, who argued in a friend of the court brief that courts are not well suited to micromanage such nuanced policy issues based on ill-defined rules. We look forward to Newsom's constitutional communion with Justice Clarence Thomas. Here are some uh, obituaries from the page. Barbara A. Nedved, 95, Garner, passed away Monday, January 15, at Westview Care Center in Britt. And let's see, visitation will be held at 4.30 to 6.30 Friday, the giant teeth, at uh, Catholic Church in Duncan with a rosary at 4 p.m., followed by a scripture uh, wake service. Visitation will continue one hour prior to services. Kevin C. Landau, L-A-N-D-A-U, 63, of Mason City, passed away Sunday, January 14th. Funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January 19th at Major Erickson Funeral Home, uh, 111 North Pennsylvania, with Pastor Jane Harris officiating. Very long obituary, can't read it all, but um, arrangements are with Major Erickson Funeral Home and Crematory, Mason City, if you want to, more information, 641-423-0924 is the number to call. And here is a James Grant Delude, D-U-L-U-D-E, Norwalk, James Grant Delude, age 35, of, of Norwalk, Iowa, entered into eternal rest on January 6, 2024. Arrangements are with Mary, Major Erickson Funeral Home in Mason City. And that number again, 641-423-0924 if you want more information. Here's one for Orville Dean Thielen, T-H-E-I-L-E-N, Norris Springs, Orville Dean M. Thielen, 683 of Norris Springs, passed away Friday, January 12, Norris Springs Care Center. Funeral services will be held at 1 p.m. Thursday. Uh, that would be today at the Fertile United, or Method, sorry, Fertile Lutheran Church in Fertile, Iowa. And here's a William Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, funeral service for William Sauer, 96, will be 11 a.m. Sunday, January 20th, Bethany Lutheran Church in Thompson. And the next one is for Leroy Leonard White, a 63 of Mason City, passed away December 18th uh, in Mason City. Come and go celebration of life for Leroy will will be 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, January 20th, Lynn's Funeral Home in Iowa Falls. Going to move to the sports section here for a couple, just a brief uh, comments on some of the stories. Late run moves Osage to 13-0 to in rivalry game, and it says it was not the prettiest performance. One of the best offensive teams in the state, Osage, looked like a team coming off a 10-day break in the second half of its game against St. Star. Angsgar on Tuesday night. The Green Devils took a commanding 16-point lead at halftime over the Saints, but needed to late 6-0 spurt to win 53-51 at home to move to 13-0 in a key top of Iowa East battle. And high school girls basketball late run spurs Green Devils to win. Some tr- rust was expected from the Osage players on Tuesday night. After all, all three of the Green Devils games last week <coughs> excuse me, were postponed due to the winter storm. Before Tuesday's game, Osage had played just one game since December 19. 
The Green Devils overcame their early struggles for a 48-42 win in a crucial top of Iowa East battle with St. Angsgar at home. The win moves Osage Beach, Osage back in a tie for first place with the Saints. The two teams are 6-2. and two. So folks, uh, you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on Thursday, January 18th on the Iris Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material, all material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger, Thursday, January 18th. Front page, raise the leaders, picture of... Uh, uh, Roger Bueller, looking over at his uh, cattle. And the headline is, Oldaboat Cattleman Roger Bueller served 12 months, 29 days in Vietnam. This is written by Doug Clough, C-L-O-U-G-H. Oldaboat is a day line. Roger Bueller was born in 1943, the son of Robert and Marjorie Bueller. We had 400 acres of continuous corn, said Bueller. Plus, we fed cattle and feral to finish hogs. Roger has been married to his wife, Ellen, for 38 years. The couple have three adult children, Bradley, Abby, and Barry. Roger's parents were leaders, said Ellen Bueller. They were strong farmers, volunteers, and involved in the community in many ways. Their boys were raised by leaders and became leaders themselves. Roger attended Iowa State University, uh, graduating with a degree in farm operations, 1966. I walked across the stage holding my diploma in one hand, said Bueller, and it seemed like I immediately had my draft notice in the other hand. I had to do something by April 1, and I chose to enter the Marine Corps. A lot of people asked me why, and the only thing I could come up with is a question in, uh, in return. If you went out for football... Did you go out with the idea of sitting on the bench? Well, Bueller was in the Marine Corps from October 10 of 1966 to June 15 of 1970 as a second lieutenant in artillery. He attended Officer Candidate School, OCS. His platoon had 50 college graduates to begin and only 28 graduated as officers. Can you imagine all of those type A personalities from every state in the Union, said Bueller. We were sharp people with a great sense of humor. Raised as a leader, Roger was not going to sit on the bench during the Vietnam War. If there was a parade, I'd walk the other way, said Roger Bueller. I hate parades. I belonged in the field with the other guys. I was a forward observer calling artillery for the infantry. Most of the officers rotated to the the rear after six months in Vietnam, and I was still in front at uh, nine and a half months. Bueller reported for his tour on in Vietnam on September 1 of 67. His tour lasted 12 months and 29 days. There were 14 artillery officers on my flight going to Vietnam, said Bueller. For, four of us were killed and four were badly wounded. At the end of September of 68, only six of us showed up for the flight back home. It was a long time to be in that environment. We were part of Operation Allen Brook. 
I was in the same clothes for 42 days, and I got the creeping crud. It was hot. You don't feel motivated to eat too much. I went from 190 pounds to 150 pounds and earned the nickname Bones Bueller. Bueller's favorite sea ration was chopped chicken. His least favorite was spaghetti and meatballs. Bueller left his tour in Vietnam in September of 68, hoping that he did his best to save the most soldiers. I felt guilty at leaving my position, knowing that some poor soul was going to have to learn the same things I learned, said Bueller. I made it out, and it became obvious that someone had a greater plan for me. I could walk into a uh, S blank 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 here and come out in one piece. I was shot at by snipers and heard the bullets go by my ear. If a soldier was wounded once, he had a 50% chance of getting shot again. I was never wounded. I had a friend, Big John, who got hit twice with machine gun rounds. He was 230 pounds and it spun him around and he went down quick. Being shot wasn't like the Hollywood version, he said. Bueller credits his wife Ellen for helping him process the memories. It helps to have a partner who is a good listener, said Bueller. After Bueller's tour in Vietnam, he was sent to 2nd Marine Division at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. In most cases, he was deployed to the Caribbean. I even extended my service another six months to finish in the Caribbean, said Bueller. There was no sense in coming back to Iowa in the middle of the winter. Bueller was 29 when he returned to Iowa, familiarizing himself with life as a farmer. My brother Duane and I fanned or farmed with Dad, said Bueller. Dad passed away in 1992. Now my son Barry is part of the Bueller Farms. Bueller's work on the family farm is always focused on livestock. We have more acres now for corn and beans, said Bueller, who serves on the Sac County Soil Conservation Board as a commissioner, but I've never planted corn. I ran a combine for maybe eight hours of my life. I've never cultivated more than one or two days in my life. I'm the cattle guy. I enjoy raising, caring for, and selling cattle. We've had the same buyer and trucker for years. It's a great family operation. Bueller manages just under a thousand head of cattle. I've enjoyed being my own boss, said Bueller, who at 80 still feels, uh, still feeds his cattle daily. I enjoy creating a plan and executing it. I got tumbled by a big heifer a couple years back, so I'm doing my best to keep a step ahead a step ahead of them. We're still on the front page. Here's an article, Flea Markets to Go to One Day, written by Kelby Wingert. Starting in February, the monthly flea market and hillbilly sale at the Webster County Fairgrounds will move to a one-day event instead of a two-day event, according to Webster County Fair leadership. We're hoping to be able to get more vendors out there that can attend a one-day market versus a two-day, said Corey Krug, president of the fair board. Previously, the flea market ran on Saturdays and Sundays, but attendance on Sundays tends to be really low, Krug said. We feel that when we look at some of the other one-day markets that go on around town, they're a little stronger, and we want to make sure it's a good use of everybody's time, and we have a lot of great things, he said. Despite dropping the second day of the flea market, vendor fees will remain the same. We met with several of the flea market vendors and were ensuring them that the, gate, the rates we're charging are still considerably less than what other areas do, Krug said. 
The first flea market and hillbilly sale of 2024 will be Saturday, February 10, at the fairgrounds, 22770 Old Highway 169 South. All markets are from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., Saturday only, and admission is free. The decision to move to a Saturday-only market isn't necessarily a permanent one, Krug said. We're just trying it for the first three months, February, March, and April, to see how every to see how everybody likes it. Um, and then we'll make decisions on what we're doing the rest of the year. The other two dates for the markets are March 9 and April 13. Krug also noted that new this year at the Webster County Fair will be a craft vendor show from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. July 21. There are usually some vendors that are set up at the fair all week. But because of all the different events happening around the fairgrounds, there really isn't any space for a big week-long craft vendor show, Krug said. For more information on the flea market and hillbilly sales, you can go to WebsterCountyFairgroundsIA.com forward slash flea hyphen market. Extreme freezing temps cause some area furnaces to ice up. This is situation at District 29 is repaired. Kelly Wingert wrote this also. Some units in a new apartment complex in Fort Dodge had to ride out last weekend's dangerously cold temperatures with no working furnaces, some residents say. Afia Habhab and Kira Albright rode up Saturday, awoke up Saturday morning to no heat in their District 29 townhome. It was freezing cold in here, Habhab said. With it being the weekend, Habab called the emergency maintenance number she was given when she moved in and reported the furnace problems. I talked to someone, and they said, we'll try and get it fixed, and they didn't really tell me what they were going to do, she said, Habab said. Meanwhile, Albright received a text message from the on-site property manager stating that maintenance would be stopping by to drop off space heaters temporarily until Monday. Albright replied back, well, with these freezing conditions, we are highly con- we are highly concerned for our safety if the heat is not going to work. Not sure if one space heater will cut it. Maybe need to be comp- comp- compensated accordingly. And waiting until Monday is crazy. I will not be able to send an electrician out until Monday, read the reply. We have provided two space heaters to help with the temps in the townhouse and will take care of this issue as soon as we possibly can. Thank you for understanding. Habhab and Albright said on Saturday they reached out to someone they knew who works in heating and that person was able to get the furnace going again. But the heat died out again a short time a while later, and for the rest of the weekend, the thermostat showed temperatures in the 50s inside, while outside wind chill reached into the minus 30s. On Monday, as promised, the furnace was back on and temperatures inside were town, their townhome began to rise. According to Kennedy Landau, Landon, Director of Operations for Real Property Management, RPM Express, which manages the District 29 property, the on-site management followed protocol for situations where a unit's furnace goes out. Our first reaction is going to be to get the heat going. That's our primary focus, Landon said. If we can't get the heat going, whether the vendor can't get it running again or we can't get a vendor out there, then our next step is to is going to be to set space heaters in the unit to try to keep the unit warm enough so that pipes don't freeze and burst. 
Because of the extreme temperatures over the weekend, all local HVAC vendors were booked solid, creating the delay in getting the furnaces at District 29 fixed, Landon said. The cause of the furnace failures, Landon said, was that the high-efficiency furnaces that were installed when the townhomes were built are so efficient at using heat that the exhaust they expel has very little heat remaining. This then causes the moisture in the exhaust to freeze inside the exhaust pipe, causing an ice cap over it and preventing it from releasing any more exhaust. In the last 10 years, many of these new builds have been built using these high-efficiency uh, furnaces to help with global warming and cut down on emissions, Landon said. And then, once we have a crazy freeze like we've had, that's how they can freeze over. RPM is based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and more than 100 units on RPM properties in that area also experience furnace freezes. The RPM team worked through the weekend talking rather taking calls and coordinating vendors for repairs in many communities, Landon said. At District 29, Landon wasn't sure on the final, or final number of units that had been affected, but Habhab and Albright said they knew of seven. As long as we don't experience temps like this often in the future, then we should be okay, Landon said. But it's just this Arctic freeze and these minus 45-degree wind chills make me affecting that are affecting everyone. Landon said it would also be ideal for the tenants to be able to stay in their unit in situations where extreme cold temperatures cause the furnace to go out. But if they need to stay with friends or family or get a hotel room, they have that option as well. However, it's on their own dime. We typically try to keep the unit in at least 65 degrees just to keep the pipes from freezing and keep people comfortable, Landon said. If they decide to go stay in a hotel, then we don't typically reimburse for that. RPM also doesn't reimburse tenants on electricity fees from using the electric heaters because it's hard to determine what the usage spike is, she added. Landon also said that the technician who worked on the furnace and got it running on Saturday was sent by RPM. The trial for a man charged in slain Algona officer's death is rescheduled. Written again by Kelby Wingert, Algona the deadline dateline. Trial for a man accused of gunning down Algona police officer Kevin Cram last September will face trial for first-degree murder in June. According to court records, 43-year-old Kyle Rickey's trial has been rescheduled for June 25 at the Kasuth County Courthouse in Algona. The trial had initially been scheduled for December 12, 2023, before being continued to May 14. On January 5, District Court Judge Nancy Wittenberg issued an order for a trial scheduling conference stating Cram's family had a conflict with the May 14 date. The parties met by video conference on Friday to agree on a new date. If convicted, Ricky faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Ricky was apprenticed near Sleepy... Um, I, Minnesota, late September 13, 2023, following a four-hour manhunt after he allegedly shot and killed Cram while the officer was attempting to serve an arrest warrant on him earlier in the evening in Algona. Ricky had an active warrant for third-degree harassment, simple misdemeanor, out of Palo Alto County. Court documents show Ricky had allegedly been harassing a former partner with text messages and phone calls between April and August. 
Cram 33 was uh, located by law enforcement and emergency medical services shortly after the shooting and transported to Kasuth Regional Health Center, where he was pronounced dead. After being apprehended in Minnesota, Ricky was extradited back to the Kasuth County Jail. He pleaded not guilty to the first-degree murder charge on October 6. He is being represented by the Mason City State Public Defender's Office. Ricky is being held in custody on $2 million cash-only bond. During Ricky's initial appearance in Kasuth County Magistrate Court in September, Prosecutor Scott Brown with the Iowa Attorney General's Office said the shooting was captured at least partially, if not fully, on video and that the gun used had not yet been located. And Iowa is the latest state to sue TikTok, and Dateline is Des Moines. Iowa, on Wednesday, became the latest state to sue TikTok over claims that the social media company deceives consumers over the amount of inappropriate content that children can access via the platform. TikTok claims an age rating of 12 and older in app stores, which is misrepresentative because of the frequent and intense mature and sexual content Iowa claims in the lawsuit against TikTok and its Chinese parent company, uh, BitDance. TikTok has sneaked past parental blocks by misrepresenting the severity of its content, Iowa Attorney General Brenna Beard Bird said in a statement. Utah, Arkansas, and Indiana have filed similar lawsuits, though a judge dismissed Indiana's lawsuit in November. Judges there determined that downloading the free social media t- app TikTok doesn't amount to a consumer transaction under its state law. The U.S. Supreme Court also will be deciding whether state attempts to regulate social media platforms such as Facebook, X, and TikTok violate the Constitution. Late in 2022, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds issued a ban on the use of TikTok on state-owned devices, as many have done, out of concerns for the security risks connected to its Chinese ownership. Reynolds also proposed this year that the Republican-led legislature adopt a new law that would require 18 and older age uh, verification for pornography websites to reduce teens' access to the content, though social media websites, along with news websites and search engines, would be exempted. Bird's lawsuit seeks to force TikTok to correct its statements, as well as financial civil penalties for the harm caused to Iowa consumers. A TikTok sportsperson said the company has safeguards in place for young people, including parental controls and time limits for those under 18, and is committed to addressing what it described as industry-wide challenges. Dog locks stranded driver out of vehicle. Dateline is Algona. The ordeal of a man who got stranded in a snowdrift along a Rural Kasuth County Road Tuesday morning was made worse when his dog accidentally locked him out of his vehicle. The man and his dog were rescued after a snowplow led deputies and family members to his vehicle. The Kasuth County Sheriff's Office reported that Michael Rigert, 43, of Algona, was treated at Kasuth Regional Health Center for hypothermia and low glucose and was released. Deputies reported that Rigert and his dog left home shortly after midnight Tuesday, and their plight was discovered at 9.18 a.m. when someone called 911 to report that a 
man was passed out in a vehicle which was stuck in a large snowdrift on 230th Street, a half, time, a half mile west of Kasuth County Road, P30. Deputies responding to the call found 230th Street blocked by snowdrifts. County Road Department was called, and one of its snowplows rammed through the drifts, enabling rescuers to reach Rigert. According to the sheriff's office, when Rigert's vehicle got stuck in the snow, he got out to start snow shoveling. While he was doing that, the dog bumped the door lock, locking him out. He broke a window to get back inside the vehicle. The Kasuth County Emergency Medical Service and Iowa State Patrol assisted deputies and the road department. Here are some short articles on things that have happened in Webster County Magistrate Court. Willful injury causing bodily injury to, by Joshua Allen Durbin, 20, Manson, preliminary hearing, January 26. Participate in a riot, Joshua Allen Durbin, 20, Manson, preliminary hearing, January 26. Fourth degree theft, Zachary Ryan Roseburg, R-O-S-B-U-R-G, 30, of 406 South 17th Street, preliminary hearing waived. Fifth degree theft, Catherine Jane Goodner, 38, 215 H Street, five days in jail, suspended, one year probation, $60. Eric Stephen Lundberg, 44, 2542 22nd Avenue North, trial February 19th. And on the police logs, Fort Dodge, Tuesday, one domestic call was reported. A car accident was reported in the 1800 block of 9th Avenue North. Car accident was reported in the 100 block of North 15th Street. Juvenile problems were reported in the 1900 block of 2nd Avenue South. Car accident was reported in the 800 block of North 25th Street. Car accident was reported in the 10th block of South 25th Street. An unknown problem was reported in the 3100 block of 7th Avenue South. A suspicious vehicle was reported in the 1100 block of Avenue B. A missing juvenile was reported in the 900 block of South 18th Street. Car accident was reported in the 1000 block of Kenyon Road. And fraud was reported in the 700 block of Avenue C. Just a few short articles. Let's read some uh, obituary news now. Um, Bonnie Peterson, age 76, Services were today, Losweiler Funeral Home, and Cheryl Allen, age 60. Funeral will be Friday, 10.30 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, today, the funeral home. Robert Shoemaker, age 93. Funeral will be 10.30 a.m. Saturday at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Ackley. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m., Friday and 9.30 Saturday, St. Mary's Catholic Church in Ackley. David Rosales, age 86. Visitation will be Saturday, 1 to 4, at uh, 1 to 4 p.m. at Losweiler Funeral Home. And Joss Eager, uh, E-G-E-R, age 31. Visitation is Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. Prayer service at 4 p.m. All at Losweiler Funeral Home. And uh, services for Edward William Crawford at St. Cloud. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 12.30 p.m. on Monday, January 22nd, St. Paul's Catholic Church, St. Cloud, for Edward William Crawford, age 101, of St. Cloud, who passed away on Sunday, January 14th, at St. Cloud Hospital. Reverend Jeremy Foof will officiate burial with 
full military honors will be uh, in the St. Joseph Parish Cemetery in White Park, Wake Park at 3.30 on Monday. And after World War II, Ed returned to Iowa and there met his wild Irish rose, Marion Cahill, whom he married in 1948. Ed tried farming and trucking until 1954 when he began working for a farm store chain first in Fort Dodge and later in Algona. And after the company was purchased by Big Bear Farm Stores, he managed the Algona store and later transferred to St. Cloud to become a buyer. He worked in merchandising and inventory control until his retirement in 1986. Jane Pearson, Jane Elizabeth Gross Pearson, P-I-E-R-S-O-N, 97 of Fort Dodge, Iowa, passed away January 13, 2024, yes, at Bickford Assisted Living of Fort Dodge. Services are pending at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Bert Auckland, A-U-K-L-A-N-D, of Goldfield, 71 years old, passed away on Tuesday, January 16. Arrangements are currently pending with Faust Funeral Home, Eagle Grove. And if you want more information, F-O-U-S-T-F-H dot com. Going to move over to the sports section of the paper today. And for those of you who are interested to see what's, uh, find out uh, what's going on on television uh, and what's being played, men's college basketball, Minnesota at Michigan State, 5.30 p.m. on Fox S1. Monmouth at Drexel, 6 p.m., CBS SN at 6 p.m., South Florida at Memphis, 6 p.m., ESPN, Wichita State at Florida Atlantic, 6 p.m., ESPN2, UNC Asheville at uh, Winthrop, 6 p.m., ESPNU, Illinois at Michigan, 7.30 p.m., Fox 1, Middle Tennessee at UTEP, 8 p.m., CBSSN. Oregon State is at Utah, 8 p.m., ESPN2. Oregon is at Colorado, 9.30 p.m., Fox 1. Loyola Marymount at San Francisco, 10 p.m., CBSN, or CBSSN. Women's College Basketball, you'll find Purdue at Penn State, 6 p.m. on BTN. Pro Basketball, if you're interested, Chicago's at Toronto, 6.30 p.m. TNT, and Memphis is at Minnesota, 9 p.m. TNT. And we're going to get to golf. If you're interested in golf, LPGA Hilton, uh, noon, GLF, PGA American Express, 3 p.m. GLF, Champions Mitsubishi Classic, 6 p.m. GLF. And yes, there's tennis, Australian Open, 10 a.m. ESPN 2, 8 p.m. ESPN. Here's a couple of sports headlines only. Triton women impressive in route. Iowa Central's Pilcher scores career high 34. The uh, Central women picked up a convincing 91 to 48 victory over Southeastern Wednesday night. And there's a story here on the late area scoreboard that Eagle Grove boys surpass 90 points. It's got the names here of Jason Morris, Tyrene Franklin, Drake Canavan, Canavan, and uh, some stories about them. And the Cougars edge the Jaguars. The Manson Northwest Webster girls claimed a 41-39 decision over Southeast Valley here Tuesday night. And Rockwell City, the 
Pocahontas area girls top South Central Calhoun Tuesday night, 66 to 46. And folks, that looks like it's uh, we're about out of time for this Thursday, January the 18th. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. My name is Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a safe day. 